enfants des voisins qui crient leur impunité, qui crient le fabuleux destin d'une vie à peine commencée. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Elves, UMFM Program Director, and you are tuned into a, uh, a special edition of Bad Intonation. Over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be presenting nothing but interviews with upcoming performers at the TD Winnipeg International Jazz Festival. We started things off with local artist Rihanna and her new song, En Attendant Demain. Rihanna will be uh, performing at 7.15 p.m. at Old Market Square as part of the opening weekend on Saturday, June 16th. 
Uh, we are going to be talking to three artists today, and I guess the uh, the letter of the day is J, since we're going to be talking to Jordana Talski, Jill Barber, and Joe Past about their upcoming performances at the Jazz Fest. But before we get to J, we're going to hear from I. Isque will be performing uh, 10.40 p.m. on Saturday, June 16th, also on that same stage with Rihanna as part of the opening weekend from her album, The Fight Within. This is Isque with Will I See.
All right. Well, her latest record is neither of either. Jordana Talski comes to the Winnipeg Jazz Festival on Friday, June 15th, playing at Old Market Square at 6.20 p.m. And she joins us by phone. How are you doing, Jordana? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, you were mentioning before we started, you've got some folks uh, lined up to, to tour with you. In terms of putting together a, a touring band versus, you know, the record, like, is it, is it the same players or did you have to kind of like look for people who could kind of work on the schedule of the tour? Or? So I did want to have a smaller configuration. And coming from a jazz background, I'm used to working in smaller configurations more often than not. Mm. Um, and I wanted to try to pare down what we have on the album, which is full band, into something smaller and more intimate. And um, I'm working with a guitarist who was not on the record and I'm working with a piano player who is on the record. So we've been able to bring some different ideas to the table, and that's a really nice trio. It's keys, guitar, voice, and I also work with a loop station. So it's a bit of a different uh, sound. I'm excited. So the loop station, is that for kind of like the percussion or drums, or is that for like your vocals? There's some vocal percussion that I use it for, and it's for the a cappella song. So on the album, there's uh, three a cappella tracks, Run, Thick, and You Oughta Know, and that's just me and my voice. So when I do that live, I use this machine. It's a Boss RC505, and it allows me to overdub myself and create music just with me on my own. Is that something that you do like when you're kind of initially writing materials, kind of mm -hmm. use that kind of material to sort of flesh out the songs? That's exactly how I composed most of the material on the album. I, uh, I wish I, I was a little more... Um, skilled at instruments and I have sort of the basics but because voice is my primary instrument when I have an idea it's usually in my head as a vocal line and so the easiest and the fastest way to get it out for a retention is by singing it so that's why I got this machine so that I could just sing it straight into the machine and have it all captured there and that's how I developed all of the songs and decided to transform some of them into full band arrangements and keep some of them as acapella tunes. Now, in terms of writing those those songs, like, are you the type of writer who kind of like books off a certain period of time each day to do writing, or are you the kind who you know inspiration hits at different times and you just kind of have to be ready to capture yeah. it? Yeah, someone just asked me this, and I'm going to try to implement regular writing times because right now that's not at all how it is, and I think it needs to happen because if you if you don't structure it, you know. You, you will it will fall to the wayside because there's so many other things to do. And really, that gives me a lot of joy. So I'm hoping to build regular time into it. But I will say that usually strikes at just the randomest opportunities. And it usually makes me late for all of my engagements. Like just the last time I was writing a song, I had to be somewhere. But I had this idea and I just had to get it out. And then I was late meeting some friends. And that's usually how it works. Well, hopefully with friends, they at least understood. Yeah, they, they'll, they'll, they'll let it slide. So in terms of writing Neither of Either, then, uh, were there songs that were kind of left on the cutting room floor, or is everything that's here kind of as you intended it to be? Or There were many more songs, and I was working, I worked with Justin Abaddon, he's the producer of the album, and we had a lengthy pre-production phase where I was bringing songs to him, and I was working on songs with him and with other songwriters, co-writers, because this was my first more serious foray into songwriting. The first album that I did had a couple originals, but um, it was the focus was not on 
songwriting. Um, and on this album, it was. So we definitely went through a whole period of canvassing different ideas and songs to land on these. And there are some other ones that maybe I'll bring out on for another record, but these were the ones that felt right for this time and for this album. Now, you've done something that I haven't seen before, and that's it's sort of side A and side B, but on two different discs. <laughs> right. Um, I'm curious what the like thought process behind doing it that way was. Sure. The reason was um, I feel that the material on this album... Uh, on the one hand, there are songs that reach towards a new direction that I've been taking with my music. And some of the songs still have a, a leg in the world, the pop jazz world, that I occupied before. So I wanted all these songs to live together, but I wanted it to be clear to a listener how I envisioned that they could all live in the same spot. So that's where Side A and Side B came for. Side A, or came from. Side A is more, I would say, indie indie pop um, and with some electronic leanings and alternative influences. And side B is more of the pop jazz fair that is a little more leaning towards what came before for me. I hope that makes sense. Right. That answer. So on side B, there is a track called Neither of Either. So you took that as the title track. And, I, and I'm always curious about kind of the motivation behind an artist choosing a specific track as kind of like emblematic of the album as a whole and, and what mm -hmm. the thought process was behind that selection so actually the first thing is it's neither of either oh and we had a discussion about that it's funny because some people say neither of either and it has been pronounced that way but we went with neither of either because um well actually because in the states that's how they would pronounce it and we were thinking is this like a do we want to go with the uk canadian i i'd say neither of either not neither of either so okay. that was just a personal thing but the reason for choosing that uh, song was because, in part, the music, it's, um, it's not one genre. It fuses from different styles. And so it's neither of either. You can't call it. I, I wouldn't call it straight jazz. I wouldn't call it straight pop mm. or straight alternative or straight this or straight that. Um, and also, it was, it was my own sense of myself. Um, I was going through a lot of transitions in life and... And I have often felt that I occupy kind of different laneways, and uh, maybe everyone feels that way about defining themselves. But that song sort of came out of this feeling of not being entirely sure where I was going, what I was doing, um, but also okay with that. So neither of either, and that's who I am. I, I can't stop myself from saying neither, just because it's like I'm the same way with writing with O-U-R for color or something like that. But uh, you mentioned transitions. It, as I understand it, you were a lawyer before? Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of the decision-making that went into then pursuing music and, and, and I don't want to say abandoning the law, but choosing something differently, what was the like thought process behind that and, and how difficult was a choice? Mm -hmm. So it was a, something that I had wanted to do for a long time, and I started my, career, my professional career as a musician pretty much at the same time that I started my legal career. Um, I started performing in a small jazz club when I was in law school because I could feel that it, <laughs> that, that path wasn't going to be uh, emotionally satisfying. And there's a whole long story of how it was that I came to go to law school and be a lawyer. I was sort of on a path, and I, I stayed with that path because I 
I, well, I was scared, I think, to take the leap. And I didn't really have the confidence at the time and the wherewithal to, to figure out how to make that transition. But over time, and as I grew more confident and stronger in a lot of ways, it, I felt more and more a pull to do that. And, and then with a few things that went on in my life, um, it sort of freed me up to finally take that plunge. So it was a difficult decision in terms of the, the, I would have to say, like the bravery factor to really go for it. But in terms of want and knowing what would feel right for me and my path and what would be satisfying, there was no difficulty in knowing that music is my passion and the thing that I should be pursuing. So it was kind of you're on a, on a school track in terms of the law and, and just kind of got sort of pulled down that lane and then your, your heart kind of wanted the, the music? Um, yes. Yes. Uh, well, there's kind of a, a long story. I don't know how long we have for this. We got a bit of time. I, you know, we, we want folks to learn about you. Well, um, I, in my, in that time, I was going through some mental health struggles with depression and anxiety. That's, um, I partly needed to have some sort of a default, something that could help keep me moving forward. Uh, while I figured some of that stuff out. And as strange as it sounds, because I came from an academic background, I was always able to do that. Going to law school and getting that education was, for me, a default. It wasn't as, um, it, it wasn't as challenging as having to figure out how to be self-employed as a musician. And so I didn't really have the, like I said earlier, the wherewithal to, to figure out my path. And there were a lot of other things going on inside of me. And so the choice to go to law school was sort of something, uh, as it, like I said, as a default, where I could still be um, accomplishing and moving myself forward, um, but secretly sort of in, in myself, knowing that it wasn't going to be the end result for me. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Did you find that uh, with your depression and anxiety, in terms of songwriting, is that something that's helpful or is it? Uh, difficult because you're kind of you have to kind of look inwards well I wasn't really doing a lot of songwriting at that time I might have started uh it's good I mean I use I have been using songwriting in a in a bit of a journaling way a lot of the lyrics on the songs of this album came out of my own personal experiences and journaling that I was doing to help relieve myself of certain things so I would say that it's healthy it's a great healthy outlet to 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 write songs Mm -hmm. Um, other people resort to more self-destructive behaviors Um, so that's been great for me now most of the songs on the on the record you wrote yourself but you did write a couple with justin who you mentioned was the producer as well what's the difference in terms of you know songwriting with with another person like what's the the dynamic like and and is it like freeing to have another person to kind of be involved with or lean on, or is it kind of hard to kind of negotiate? That's a great question. Um, I am still, I consider myself still a novice songwriter, um, you know, cause I, I, uh, I write from my own experiences and I'd like to get to a point where I could write from a character or write about larger social issues. But for where I am right now in my, songwriting it's very personal so that can make it difficult um when there's someone else in the room i think it's both 
it can make it difficult, especially if you have an idea of something that you, you want to be doing and then someone else introduces another idea and you're not sure how to navigate that road and it's all happening in the session. So something that I have found helpful is when there's more than one session where I can sort of explore some ideas then go back and be alone with those ideas, bring my own uh, ideas, more ideas on top of that, and then return. So kind of uh, as a, a team process. But when it's one session, because I was in uh, Los Angeles to write some of these songs where it was just one session, um, it can be a little bit, there can be a certain pressure cooker uh, aspect. Mm-hmm. But if the personalities are fitting, it can be really good because you, you're sort of on the cooker to get something together. And, uh, and in the case of working with Justin and Don in L.A., we came up with two songs that ended up on the album. So I think it's a very good skill to keep developing. And uh, that's one of the things that I want to do. One of my career goals is to collaborate more in future. Did you learn anything like musically or creatively from those, those experiences writing with someone else? Like, was there kind of ideas that they brought that you're like, oh, I haven't considered writing this way or exploring this before? Yes, but I don't know how to verbalize. It was it was more of a feeling, and it was already a few years ago, so the specifics sure. I can't really speak to. But everyone has a different style, and I'm still figuring out my style. So in terms of material that you've been working on subsequent to this record, have you noticed like a, a change in, in your approach or like, you know, do you find it easier now that you have that experience under your belt? Oh, good question. Hmm. Yes and no. Uh, probably more yes than no, but I think really the songs, the songs that uh, came easiest are also the songs that I think people have, um, have that have resonated the most with people. Oh. And so I think it's about trying to get in the right zone where inspiration can strike. Um, that's still hard, I think, to just be, be freed up in your mind and in your space enough to go there. So I don't think that that has changed. But then when those moments do come, it's, it's a wonderful, joyful feeling. So I still have uh, a lot of um, exploring to do. Have you discovered a way to get yourself into that mind space? Like, are you like practicing mindfulness or things like that? Or I actually took a mindfulness course a few years ago. Um, I wouldn't say I practice it. No, I would. Uh, I plan on on um, finding some spaces outside of my normal space, like outside of my apartment. I like to be in nature. I know there's the uh, there's the Banff Center mm. where a lot of musicians go. To have that time to themselves, something like that is uh, is what I would like to do. You can't always do that. Um, that's sort of a special time that you can allocate for yourself. So I still want to figure out a proper schedule. I guess the answer is no. <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. Not yet. Um, <laughs> no. So in terms of uh, the, the the performance, like you said, you're, you're performing as a trio right now with this the tour. In terms of material, like, are there things that you're kind of like re- re-envisioning or reworking for that live trio, or are you kind of trying to replicate the record as best as possible? Well, we have been uh, reformatting a lot of the songs, and there's elements of programming in some of the songs on the album, so we don't have 
we don't have like a sound person and uh, crazy gear with us. Right. So we've been rehearsing and figuring out how we can bring some of those elements to the trio format. It's a, really exciting, actually. Um, and then for some of the material, yeah, we're giving it a different feel here. I would say we're not trying to replicate what's on the album, but trying to still give a nod to it, our own interpretation. So is it uh, exciting to kind of like rediscover your songs by having to rework them for this? Totally. Yeah, it yeah. definitely is. Yeah. Before we go, Great. I want to get you to pick a track off the record that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking that track in particular, I'd love to hear that. Well, um, the song Run uh, is an example of an acapella song. I wrote it with this loop machine that I spoke of before. Right. And um, that sort of steered me in the new direction that I am finding myself on with fusing elements of jazz, pop, and alternative or indie, uh, an indie sound. I think that'd be a good track. So it's the one that kind of most points towards the future? I think so. Uh, what's the best place to keep tabs on you, social media or internet-wise? Are you an Instagrammer, Twitter? Oh, what's, I'm what's on your, it all. You're on it all? <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, my website is jordanatolsky.com, and there are links there to Instagram, Facebook. I have a YouTube channel. I'm on Spotify. It's all there. It's all there. It's all linked there. Uh, Friday, June 15th at Old Market Square at 6.20 p.m. as part of the TD Winnipeg International Jazz Fest. Uh, Jornada, thanks very much for taking some time to join us. Thank you. Surprise, you find disappointment mired in rage. And now it's all a wash. How do people have so much to say? I can barely think sometimes. And I would like to run. 
record is Metaphora. Jill Barber will be bringing that to the Jazz Winnipeg Festival playing Knox United Church Monday, June 18th, and she joins us by phone. How are you doing, Jill? Michael, I am very well. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, happy to have you on the show. Uh, this is sonically a departure, but I think uh, there's still a through line to this record from from past albums. And I'm curious about kind of like the the decision making or kind of mindset going into the studio or going into the writing process on this like did you was there like a conscious choice to to go this way you know what my choice the choice i did make going into uh making this record was to uh to go out of my comfort zone a little bit and i worked with 100 percent new people that i had never worked with before so all new collaborators um i wrote the songs on the album uh with people, writers that I had long admired but never worked with before. Mm-hmm. And then um, I worked with a couple of producers that I'm a fan of but had never worked with before. So that was that was a big, that was my first big departure because uh, for the last number of records, I've worked with the same band and often the same producers. So just by virtue of working with um, a different crew of people, I, um, I think it really kind of informed the sound on the record and also the kind of bold attitude of the record, which is just, it's just different for me. And that's really what I was seeking was just change and a depart, a creative departure. Was that like a challenge you set yourself or something that you were just kind of ready for or like? I think it was just something that I was yearning for creatively. Mm -hmm. I um, was feeling a little bit like stuck in a groove, no pun intended, and um, just wanted to push myself out of my usual creative wheelhouse and, and see what happened. And I was really, I definitely didn't set out to write in any one particular genre, mm-hmm. but I did want to write a record that had, um, had a lot of energy to it. Right. And I wanted to write a record that um, allowed me to say more, if that makes any sense. There was... There was more that I, I had to say beyond my previous work. You do say a lot in this record. And and I was curious about, because obviously, you know, the period in which you're writing this and then recording it and stuff like that, it can take a while. So for this to land and feel like so of the moment, like how how tight a timeline, how like how far into this were, were some of these things? Because, I mean, this is this is, feels mm-hmm. really au courant. I am. Um, I didn't really give. I didn't really impose a lot of deadlines um, for myself, and I didn't have any imposed on me, which was nice. I really. I just. I. I knew I wanted to take a period off the road and just focus on writing, 
and I didn't know how long that period would be, but I did want to write a bunch of songs. And I wrote about 20 songs for this record, which is more than I have for any other record. I usually just write kind of enough songs and then start recording it. But in this case, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of get a broad picture of where I was at creatively and then capture that um, in the best way I could with, with, with um, selecting which songs made the album. So you winnowed it down like by over half then if there was 20 plus I did. songs. Yeah. What was the decision-making process like? Was it, you know, looking for stuff sonically or thematically or like how did you de- determine what holds it's, together or what makes the record? It's a good question. It really just, it, I sat with the songs a lot. I listened to them a lot. I didn't share them a lot. I kept them pretty close to the chest, but I just... Um, in the end, I just went with the songs that felt like they stuck around the longest with me, the ones that I wanted to go back and listen to again, and the ones that um, that I felt I had really like nailed the emotion or um, captured something that represented me and, and where I'm at. So it really was just kind of, um, I followed my instincts on it. I have to imagine that's important if you're going to be then touring these songs, that these are the ones that most... Uh resonate with you exactly and i i think about that a lot when i'm writing i do sometimes i sit down and um, when i set out to write a song i think like what what does the show want what does the show need what how like what kind of a song do i want to get the opportunity to deliver it live on stage and so i'm very much inspired by um by the live show when i'm in the writing process right that's partly why I wanted to have um, to make a record that had a lot of energy. Is I just I was ready to move more on stage. I was ready to have more fun on stage, to engage people more, and just to have a bit more forward momentum. I, I, I I'm reticent to say that I was kind of getting bored with my old material, but I think it's just, it's been with me a long time, and I was really craving something something new and fresh. You mentioned, you know, the the energy being important, and I'd read uh, with the release of the Mercy video that the this is like the essentially the the audio, like the your take from when you just first wrote it as a demo. Basically, you felt that the energy and emotion that you felt in that first singing was the one to use. Yes, and I, I did go back and try to get a more sort of perfect vocal take. And whenever we would compare my my newer takes with the original demo vocal. They just didn't, um, they didn't stand up against it emotionally. So, but that is the one, I think that's the one song on the record where we, we did actually use the original demo vocals. I think for all the other songs, they were, they were re-recorded and, and they morphed a little bit more. But that, that, that one song, Mercy, was, um, it was one of those songs that I just, just as I could have released it exactly as I wrote it and it would have, it would have held up, I think. It's a particularly resonant song because you're you're tackling mental health and and depression of a, of a friend and it came from like as a uh, maybe like a reassurance or, re- or a response to that friend like can you mm-hmm. take yourself back to like when you first wrote it and like the impulse behind it? Sure, it's hard to know how to help uh, a friend that is suffering um, from a mental illness. Um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to see someone you love suffer, and um, I'm. I'm not. I can be a friend, 
but I can't be a professional. I can't. Um, I, I, there's a, a certain feeling of, of helplessness that I feel that uh, people experience when it comes to seeing loved ones suffer. You can be there for them, but you can't. Um, you can't flick a switch. I think. I think that's what I was thinking about. I was, when I sat down to write that to write that song. I was thinking, I wish I could just flick a switch, you know, in this person, so that they could see what I see. Um, but it doesn't work like that. And um, so I think that song was written a little bit out of my own feelings of helplessness um, in terms of how I could actually help. Um, and at the end of the day, how we can help is just to is to be there to support and to send our love out to them, to throw our love at them and uh, to have open arms. And, um, and so I think that song was just a, a bit of a plea and um, a bit of a um, processing of my own emotions over um, a loved one's illness. Yeah, the other day you, you, when you shared this song on, on Instagram, you, you wrote a post um, saying that it's a song that calls for more compassionate kindness to oneself and more connectedness to one another, mm-hmm. which when I was saying, you know, like this, this feels like a very now record. This is like a very now song off of, of a very now record in terms of that connectedness. And I'm curious, you know, as a performer who goes across the country and, and sees a variety of different people and stuff like that, like, is that something that you intuit from the stage or from meeting people as you travel? Or is that just like kind of foundational to you as a person or? I mean, I think moving around in this world, it's easy to see how in this, in this you know, highly, highly um, technologically connected world, people are losing more and more touch with one another personally. Um, and um, depression and mental illness is, is so common and, and probably becoming more common. And, and, and fortunately, the availability of treatment is... Um, and the access to it is not what it needs to be uh, for people to get the help that they need. And, um, yeah, it's a dangerous um, direction that we're moving in as a society. And it scares me. I think it scares a lot of people. But um, for me, my, my number one job as a performer and as a, and as a writer, um, my number one hope is that I can connect with people personally uh, through my music, through my shows, and that is why I love my job so much. That is why I love making music. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I make music for the pure joy of healing myself. Thing. I think that I think what I'm longing for is a connection um, to other people. Um, and when I listen to music, what I'm seeking is a connection myself. So that's like music is a really powerful way for people to connect. And um, I don't know about you, Michael, but whenever I uh, go see live music. It feels like it feels like therapy to me. People really do well. I don't know. Maybe not the big rock concerts, but thankfully at my concerts, people put away their phones and um, and live kind of in the moment. And uh, it can be really meditative and really um, restoring. I find. Yeah, my uh, the greatest appeal to me of like a live show, particularly like you said, not necessarily like a, a big concert, but like a more, a more intimate one, is the like opportunity for to be spoken to on a, on a personal level in in a moment that is like irreplaceable or, or like, you know, you just, you can't replicate that. that that's, mm-hmm. you have to live in the now and kind of be mindful of that performance and, and where you are mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, and you're in, you're in a room with a whole bunch of other people that are there 
for for similar reasons, which is nice too. Even if it's a room full of strangers, you you know you all came together that night, and uh, that's kind of a beautiful thing. That's why I love live music so much. Was that in terms of like the notion of like co-writing on this record? Did that open you up in some way to to like share what is con- conceivably an insular process if you're writing by yourself? Did, mm-hmm. did, did that present like another opportunity for connectedness or like kind of like oh, yeah. fit with that like, larger theme? I um in the early years of my career, I wrote exclusively um, by myself. I I didn't uh, I didn't really get into co-writing until about five or six years ago, I'd say. Um, and then as soon as I started co-writing, I enjoyed it so much that I've that's mainly what I do now. So, yeah, for the exact same reasons, as you point out, it feels like. You know, creative collaboration is just another way to connect with another person and to create something that didn't exist before is uh, pretty cool and it's a pretty great experience. So, yeah, it's, I find it very inspire, an inspiring way to work. And working with other people, writing songs with other people always brings out stuff in me that I, I'm sure I wouldn't have arrived at had I just been working on my own. So in terms of that unexpectedness, like the things that they're, they're giving you, um, Girls Gotta Do, you co-wrote with uh, Mother Mother's Ryan Goldemann. Mm-hmm. And and I'm curious about, I mean, because this is a pretty, like, Me Too and, and woman-centric song, and mm-hmm. it's coming out as a co-write with a, with a guy. And I'm curious about, you know, the dynamic of that and, and uh, you know, how, how that mm-hmm. was shaped. Yeah, um, well, I had that, I, I had that kind of chorus, like, Girls Gotta Do kind of like going around in my mind like a mantra. Um, and uh, I had this songwriting session with Ryan coming up. And I, I, he's, a, he's an incredible person to work with. Um, and he, he was definitely like assisting me. He was a big, uh, he, was, he was really encouraging of me kind of exploring new creative directions in my music. And, um, and he knew from the get-go from the first song we wrote together that I, you know, I, I definitely had sort of... Um, issues of women's empowerment kind of circling around in, in my mind and I wanted to address that in my music. So he was just really incredibly supportive. I think Ryan uh, Gildemann, he probably couldn't have written a song like Girls I Do on his own, but I think he felt kind of privileged to be um, a part of um, the song about, about women's empowerment and about, you know, it's something that I, that meant a lot to me and he, he certainly appreciated that and got that, and he was really instrumental in helping me, like, get out my message musically in a way that was kind of punchy and cool and even kind of fun, you know. Which it's um, I think I've been, I think I've I've had a bit of trepidation about writing like quote unquote political type songs because there's always a risk of sounding kind of um, preachy or I don't know kind of like it could just sort of turn people off it cannot be artistic enough if, you know but um in this case like i just wanted to write basically just wanted to write um a, a song that women could you know pump their fists to and could help them i don't know get going get motivated and i also just wrote it um, as my own <laughs> anthem in the hopes that other people might relate to it so yeah uh, no but it was it was really excellent working with ryan he just totally got it and he's a you know he is an ally and um an incredible writer so it was a privilege 
for me to write with him. And I think he felt honored to be included in this kind of like women's empowerment anthem, you know, to have a small uh, role in, in that movement. So writing your own anthem to like pump your fist or, or pump yourself up, like did you have any forebears or, or like previous uh, women you could look to that had written a song like that that motivated you? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, there. I just um, I just finished kind of compiling a a Spotify playlist of songs that I felt were kind of good um, bedfellows with uh, with girls got to do. I mean, there. I'm. I'm. Yeah. So much of this record and so much of the music that I make is inspired by other women and particularly other Canadian artists, women that are my peers. Um, you know, people like Jen Grant and Rose Cousins, Amy Milan from Stars, Hannah Georges, and I don't know people people like that. So I, you know, uh, I'm yeah, I'm very much inspired by other women writers one of the things the the lines in girls got to do is about giving advice like a man don't think twice like a man i'm always curious and this is something that i've been outside of this talking to to people like rachel giza about in terms of like masculinity and and sort of contemporary notions of like gendered behavior you know how much thought do you give into when you're when you're writing lyrics about you know, the, the political nature or like the socio-political uh, aspects of, of a lyric like that? Like, you know, I mean, how, how important are those lyrics in sort of conveying, as you said, like a, a political message? Mm-hmm. It's a good question, Michael. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm happy to go there. And that, like, I'm, I'm also just as a side note, like thrilled to be able to talk about socio-political issues, you know, in regards to my music. Because like I said, I haven't really gone there that much in the past. Right. Um, so to answer your question, I like I really when as a songwriter, when I sit down to write a song, I really am, I just want to write about what is going on in, in me and in my head, and my heart, in my life and how I'm feeling. Um, I don't I, I rarely have, you know, I never have a political agenda per se uh, with my music. Um, but having said that, as a as a person and as a woman in 2018 I do have a I do have an agenda and so I think that agenda and that mindset was very present has been very present in my mind and inevitably it, it sneaks into my kind of creative life as well uh, so um, you know you referenced those lyrics I think that I've done a little bit of personal analysis of my own behavior uh, over the last number of years. I think, you know, with this Me Too movement and just the general greater women's movement that's taking place in the world right now, a lot of people are checking their behavior, mm-hmm. men and women. And uh, I've definitely reflected on my behavior as a woman in still very much a like a, a male sort of heavy industry. And, and I've realized that I've had to, I have had to play games, I guess, uh, when it comes to trying to, you know, trying to make a career as a woman in a male-dominated business, and um, I do think I've had to sort of act like a man at times, and um, and not, I haven't always just been totally myself. Like I think there's, I have felt the need to to morph and be a, become a bit of a chameleon, and uh, so that's what I was sort of referencing in those lyrics. But um, I feel like I'm stepping out now, particularly with this record, just. 
and also where I'm at in my life. I'm, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. <laughs> I'm not in my 20s anymore. Like, I feel like a more mature and wiser woman and bolder and more courageous and uh, more powerful. I think I recognize my power now as a woman and I'm unafraid to use it. And that's kind of what that, that song is trying to convey. Right. That, uh, I mean, like you said, it needs to be like a fist pumping kind of anthem and, and whether it's for yourself or for, for another woman. Mm-hmm. I am curious about choosing to call it girl then in that case. Mm-hmm. Did you have any hesitance to use the term girl? Um, yeah, it's, it's, you raise a really good point because um, my husband would be the first to tell you, like, I always correct uh, men that refer to women as girls. Right. It's a bit of a pet peeve of mine, but um, I can call myself a girl because I, because I am a girl. Um, but <laughs> it's, I guess it's a bit of a double standard, but, uh, you know, they're like, it's I yeah I am I am both a woman and a girl but certainly in any professional context if anyone else is referring to me then I expect to be called a woman right um, but you know I think most I think many many women um, well I don't want to speak for all women but I think a lot of women like me still uh, very much feel like a girl at times I think that's a part of being a woman is um, so few of us ever completely lose touch with um, the feeling of what it is to be a girl. And so that you choosing to use a girl's got to do is um, a bit of a, um, a reclamation of, of that kind of that connectedness that I have to my own inner girl. And the difference between my girl and my woman is my girl, the girl part of me is a little bit more vulnerable and, uh, so I think that I think that's kind of what what I'm taking ownership of when I when I refer to myself as a girl. Right now that you're but talk- men should still call women women unless they're actual children. <laughs> I do feel that pretty strongly about that. Right, that that's like an infantilizing step to to do that if you're mm-hmm. if it's not you yeah. describing yourself. And I, and I mean now that you're talking about you know I think about like women referring to like girls' night. Exactly. That's, yeah, you it's, know, it's, the, it's, it's similar. Yeah, I think it's a similar kind of. Right, that there's an innocuousness to that, or or at least like you know a reclamation of it, and and it's not, mm-hmm. you know, call, calling yourself juvenile or something like that. Right. You know, like you said, you haven't necessarily written from from a political place, but if you've always written from a personal place, and is sure, this yeah. just a, a byproduct of, as you said, like kind of growing into yourself and not being in your twenties, being like kind of older and and having more experiences that you can't help but be in some ways political just by virtue of who you are now? Yeah, I think so. And I, and I do think it's, I do think I'm a product of the climate in which we live as we all are. Um, and I suppose I feel a sense of responsibility to, um, to use my voice now to, um, to speak to women's issues or my own issues as a woman. Yeah. I just, yeah, I guess I'd say I'm not a kid anymore and I want to, I, I want to, I care about what's important and I'm ready to kind of um, sing about it in my music. And it's true. And thank you for saying that. It's not that I've never, it's not that I've always, I've always sung about what I felt was important, but I think, you know, a lot of my previous material is very like romantic and uh, you know, it's, it's more matters of the heart. And um, I don't know, I suppose this record is a little bit less matters of the heart and um, moving a little bit more towards matters of, my spirit and my mind and my place in this world. 
No, it's still matters of the heart in that you care about it. So, Absolutely. Jill, before we go, right. I want to get you to pick a track off the record that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking it or, or an anecdote about it or some sort of uh, rationale, I'd love to hear that. Well, thank you for the opportunity uh, to pick a song. You know what might be a nice song to uh, to close the interview with is, um, is actually the opening track on the album, which, in light of our conversation about girls, uh, this rec- this song is called The Woman. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, I feel like I, when I wrote this song, I kind of knew it would be the opening track because I feel like it sets the tone for the rest of the record. It is um, kind of a an empowerment song and kind of a, I don't know. Uh, a statement song? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Yes, it is a statement song. And um, so it has pride of place as the first song on the record. And I think that would be a nice song to close this really awesome interview with. We'll, so, we'll, we'll close with the opener then. Uh, Jill okay. Barber will be at the Jazz Festival Monday, June 18th at Knox United Church. Jill, thanks very much for taking some time to talk about the record and uh, really look forward to seeing you here in Winnipeg. Michael, the pleasure was really mine, and uh, thank you for your great questions. I really appreciate uh, our conversation. We'll see you in Winnipeg soon. Is her.
All right, well, coming to the Jazz Winnipeg Festival Tuesday, June 19th at the Goodwill. Vancouver's Joe Past. They are touring in support of their new record, Their Prime. Joining me on the line, Joseph Hirabayashi. How's it going, Joe? Pretty good. How's it going? I'm doing well. So, uh, I mean, first of all, you're on, you're on a jazz festival, Bill. What do you think of that? Uh, it's cool. <laughs> when when you were recording this record, did you think that was, this is something you'd end up? Um, hey, yeah, we'll we'll play any shows we get. <laughs> sure enough. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I I mean, uh, yeah, I guess we're definitely not a jazz band. <laughs> I kind of started the project um, just a bit of a tip of a hat to Joe Pass, the jazz guitar player, and the name Joe Pass. Right. Part of that was also that. Uh, I did. I actually am, have gone to jazz school for jazz piano myself, but wanted the sort of project that was like definitely wouldn't uh, go in that direction. And I thought using the name would kind of steer me clear. <laughs> Generally, but now we're into jazz. Stuff, so. And there, there you go. Yeah. So, jazz piano coming out of uh, like studying something like that. Has that like informed songwriting for you at all? Like, is something like did you learn any skills or chops as a result of like formal study that you still apply or use in some way? Yeah, totally. I feel like I'm cheating sometimes. Like, I <laughs> I definitely have like a bit of a nerd brain, and um, you know, my jazz chops aren't great, but I can still sit down and play whatever chord progression or whatever key and that kind of thing. And I definitely use that to write all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, I feel it feels uh, cool to be able to do that. I definitely like almost. I realized actually after the fact and starting Joe Pass that I kind of quit piano <laughs> in a way, and because uh, it's such a guitar band. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, for this record too, I sat down. There's still songs that I would sit down and even write guitar parts or um, bass parts on uh, the piano, and. Uh, uh, and then transfer them over to those instruments and stuff. So, is that you're just most comfortable with the piano in terms of composition? I, I've been playing piano since I was like five, mm-hmm. so I don't really know. It's funny. I'm. I feel like I've written way more songs on guitar, and also like I really feel like songs come to me more on guitar. Uh, but piano is such a like. If I need, if I'm stuck, I can just sit on it and. Sit at it. I can just sit right on the piano. <laughs> Ideas come to me. No, but I can just sit at the piano and uh, uh, be able to like elaborate on things or whatever. So, um, uh, yeah. So it's it's funny though because I feel like guitar has always been more of like my entry point into actually being really excited about music. Piano was something I just did because I was like forced into lessons since I was a kid. Well, I mean, being um, forced into lessons. I mean, I'm I, I was in the same same thing uh, you know as, as a young kid that's what my parents put me into uh, but at a certain point like th- there had to be like a conscious decision if you're going to go to like jazz school totally. to study it th- that like you because uh, you know in high school I was like okay I'm done and I told my parents I was done but you yeah. obviously made a conscious decision to, to continue on what like at what point did you then realize oh wait no I don't want to do this or like was it like the act of going through jazz school and studying the piano much like kind of deeper um it, so it's funny and actually i guess now that we're getting into it it totally informs this project because like um 
you know, I, I, I got my way and got the quit piano when I was like 12 or something. And then I still ended up liking it. But then I ended up switching teachers. And then uh, in high school, I picked up guitar and then started playing in bands. And then when it was like time to decide on what to do for post-secondary, I was like, well, I'll go to school for music. And since I've been playing piano the whole time and like definitely I'm like more skilled and qualified at it, I'll go to school for piano. And then I minored in guitar. Um, and then I went down and I've actually said this a few times with this project, like uh, the Joe Past project was me actually finally after going through music school and then starting all these projects that were like kind of influenced by uh, like spring was definitely with pe- like peers from the music school I went to and was a, more of like a uh, like kind of a prog band or something like that. Mm-hmm. But after doing that, I kind of realized, I'm like, oh, I never actually, you know, I went to music school because I picked up guitar and started doing, like, kind of indie rock bands. And I never actually let myself do that. Like, the initial reason to study music was to get the skills to do what now I feel like I'm doing. Okay. Um, so there was, like, kind of a, there's a funny return into, like, getting interested in bands in my youth and stuff like that again. And, um, uh, but then there's still all this, these years of an hours that I've spent studying, you know, like contemporary music or like, uh, you know, like Afro pop music or like, you know, like all this, I went to a pretty eclectic school too. So like all this other stuff that's like still in there. Um, and, uh, it's cool. It kind of feels like I can, you know, it's funny. I, I don't, it doesn't feel weird for us to play a jazz fest to me. Sure. <laughs> like answer that question. But I don't think the band is like particularly a jazzy band or anything like that. But uh, I played uh, the Vancouver Jazz Fest with, uh, with other bands I've been in before and stuff. So um, those bands made more sense, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> for sure. So studying stuff like Afrobeat and stuff, like does having an understanding of the architecture or construction of songs in another genre like help? inform or, or change kind of your approach to the songwriting that you're doing in a genre like you said is kind of like more of a throwback to what you were listening to as like a young like like as a youth yeah um yeah i think there's like definitely on the album there's times when things go a little bit um so my a and r guy at sub pop he's like we, we were talking about whether it was going to get picked up by a magazine called prog magazine in the uk and <laughs> I just thought it was funny because they were kind of reviewing whether it was proggy enough for the right. magazine. And he was like, I describe it as a little proggy. And I'm like, yeah, there's like these little things that slip in. Like we're not, um, there's definitely, you know, changing time signatures and definitely considered other considerations rather than just like, and I mean, the album is kind of composed music, although it is influenced by, you know, like Modest Mouse or like Nirvana or um, like indie rock bands. I was, I've been into forever or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, compositionally, I, I was, was compositionally, it's like composed. So this funny is right. It, it, <laughs> it rides, uh, I think a line between those two, as far as whether, you know, it's just, I mean, none of the songs were really jammed out. Well, yeah, definitely none of the songs were jammed out and I kind of just a band jam setting the way a lot of bands will write. Um, which def- definitely produces more of this, like, you know, there's a kind of designy aspect to to the record. 
That uh, the riding the line notion kind of brings me to something that I'd read in an interview. I think it might have been with the Georgia Strait that you did about sort of the duality in the content that you purposely wrote like lyrics to be ambiguous or to be able to be read two ways. Is that something that like that riding the line is in the inherent in the music as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> there's a uh, even like their prime, the title, there's like a few, a couple different ways you can take that. And then, um, the title places, please, or left, uh, there is like, yeah, there is a lot of, uh, I don't think it's like combating duality. Cause I don't think it really changes. I don't think it's like a record where you, it can mean directly two things. Cause I think both those things, I was like basically trying to, like, in terms of like, the lyrical content really trying to center everything in just like a personal perspective but have it really aim towards this like larger um you know political landscape um critique or criticism uh and uh but yeah there is uh there i think there is i don't know it's funny and i i just like i i there is a weird kind of like depending on how you're looking at it, it does seem a little bit different, I guess, with each song or with the record. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious to see what people think. Like, I'm already been so surprised by some of the just within the singles rollout. Um, and then there's been a, a few kind of I've seen a few reactions to like, oh, this record is totally different than what the singles were, <laughs> mm. <laughs> were like upon hearing the whole record from a few different blogs that you know have been covering it. The, Right. As, as the single's been coming out. Um, uh, what kind of thought went I, into choosing like the succession of singles and how they were rolled out? Like, was it a strategy like that you did with Sub Pop on like, you know, introducing the record in some way? Or like, was there some thought to like, you know, ultimately when people hear the full record, they might be challenged by how the whole thing weighs together versus, you know, the dribs and drabs of these singles? Yeah. Totally. I, I think uh, I knew MDM when I wrote that song. I wrote it, uh, knew it was going to be the second song, and I just knew that it was going to be the first single, and I knew that people were probably, upon hearing the record, going to be like, that's the first single. And uh, and so there was no like um, dispute with that. Like Both labels, Royal Mountain 2, everyone was like, oh, definitely MDM is the first single and lead track for the record. Mm-hmm. Um and I had, and I, uh, I kind of knew that it was going to push this perspective. I know it's really interesting with that stuff. And so there was, there was quite, quite a few conversations about it. Um, and uh, I did uh, felt like I definitely wanted to let, you know, the label or let people who had listened to the record um, kind of weigh in about it more than I would kind of dictate which singles. Mm. Glass, I knew, was the only one I really, really pushed for. Um, because, uh, I just knew my friend, John Muter, who directed the video had just like a wonderful video idea. And so I wanted that video to be, um, released. And then also I felt like it was one that in terms of like the content of the record was the most upfront, um, and, you know, would spur the conversation more towards, uh, <laughs> the whole, uh, Vancouver placelessness, uh, theme. <laughs> right. Yeah, the place, space, and identity that you described in one of the interviews. Yeah. Uh, 
so as I understand it, like you shared songs as they were being developed with Sub Pop, like that. You, it wasn't like, hey, here's this record. It was like, hey, here's this and this and this and portions of this record, which seems like an unusual thing from my understanding of kind of like how records get handed to labels. Was that something purposeful or like how did that come about and what was that dynamic like? Um, it was a, uh, it was really cool. And actually, I feel like that was probably more of a, it, it felt like more of like a classic kind of scenario or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, um, I guess like back in the day, bands would get signed without a record and then they would like assign a producer and sign a recording studio and all that stuff. And then, you know, the label would be listening as it was coming in and all this um, I don't know. You know, I should ask my A and R guy what his intention is. He <laughs> he kind of was a um he uh he definitely was like, oh, I hear you're recording a record. I'd love to hear it as you're recording it. Like he definitely said that, and I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, I've never had that relationship before. Had that, uh, you know, um, be a thing. So uh, you know, I couldn't. Uh, I'd be lying to say it didn't definitely like inform the album, like sending off tracks to someone at Sub Pop and being like, oh, I should finish this thing, or like, you know, thinking about that being a potential like listener, you know, in terms of the of the audience and having that like on the table like fairly early on. Mm-hmm. Um, although it wasn't like, oh yeah, for sure, I'm going to put out your record or whatever. And like, I really didn't even know. Like, you know, I knew I met someone that worked at Sub Pop and I knew they were like A&R, but I didn't really know, you know, that it's a pretty large label. and I didn't know how exactly they pick bands or how that whole process goes about. Right. Um, but uh, uh, it was cool. I'm into it. And I and part of it was, you know, I definitely like um, when I started this project, I had this kind of thing where I uh, uh, wanted to really get even like just. Like the, for those first two EPs I put out are almost like demo-y. Like I I wanted to have the writing process be like really quick and really connected to people listening to it, as opposed to uh, you know having songs written for like members of a band and then putting it out. Um, and uh, and so I like the idea of like basically writing with your I. I I think there's like a, a, I don't think it's cool when people think of writing for their audience. You know, I feel like there's a lot, like some people think uh, that generally loses some sort of like authenticity or like individuality or something. But right, yeah. I definitely think that in other, in, in other music outside of like rock and pop music, that's more of a thing. Um, and uh, I like having a direct relationship not that I'd be like, hey, what do you guys want to hear? Okay, I'll write that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do like having some sort of like direct feedback relationship with the people actually listening to the music, um, uh, as well as like the people I'm playing with and stuff too. So it's not like you're asking the audience, hey, give me a theme and a key, and then I'll go yeah. write a song. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll just whip up a tune for you. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, but but by having having some sort of thing like relationship directly with the audience or people listening to the music, I think can be really, really cool. And we're in more of a position now as like musicians and artists to be able to do that. Um, this record is, uh, you know, this was more traditionalist and it's being put out on a label and, and it took, you know, it was finished like a while ago and now it's uh, coming out. And, but uh, um, definitely with like the way things can go with 
singles on the internet and how people fast you can record stuff and then also distribute it. There's a lot more uh, possibility for like developing kind of really reactive, I guess, like music to yeah, the like world. <laughs> put, putting a demo up on SoundCloud, looking at feedback, and then like replacing that one with a new version of the track or something. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So. As I understand it, one of the things I read was that Frank Ocean's Blonde somehow kind of informed their prime. And and I'm curious if you can kind of elaborate on, on what exactly it, that the role of that record was. It's just like, an, I know, I feel like a lot of things that influenced the record were um, very, in like, there's some stuff that's like more direct where I'm like, oh, this is totally, you know, kind of like this heat or something like sonic, more sonically influenced. Um, I want, well, you know, that album is sonically influenced too, because I just think that album, uh, I wanted to make I, what I described as like a collage album, something that felt like it was like pieced together and then goes, you know, uh, between like different spaces and kind of like feels like things are kind of cut and pasted a little bit. Um, and I thought that Blonde was also, was also a record like that, um, and it was just one that that was really, um, it's just such a creative record. So it's something you can like put on while you're in a creative process, and it it inspired like it just it kind of propelled me to be inspired to like keep going. And it's also just like something that like I feel like the record shares a similar kind of it gets really small and then it gets really big quality that is um, on that record. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're Working towards like a record that does a variety of different things, like how do you get something that's you know disparate to hold together? Like what is it that holds it together? Um, yeah, I I think this record is like the most. It's funny it, for me, and I don't know uh, if you've listened to especially like my really old band SSRIs. I was gonna say I, I actually all that's the, the one that I knew you from was SSRIs. <laughs> so. Yeah, <laughs> um, well that's cool. Uh, but uh, I, you know, it's so funny. I I finished the record and I was like, oh sweet, I finally finished like something that like roughly sounds like sounds the same every track. And like I did something that's like very cohesive. Like I felt like. And then uh, playing it for other people initially and like people sub hop, they're like, yeah, it's like all over the place. <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> like, but there is some a continuity or like a tone or something that keeps it kind of. Uh, Kind of together. Um, I think like probably uh, my singing, my voice on this record, uh, and just the, I guess the quality and, and the melodies probably keep uh, the song or keep everything sonically tied. Right. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I that's a, like a hard question. Like I think that for me, it's probably by accident if things stay <laughs> I feel like they have a full continuity right um uh or it's just like human error it's like well you know it's like i i'm i'm i am just joe so <laughs> i'm going to do joe like things regardless of whether i'm playing guitar or piano <laughs> or doing whatever there's going to be the same level of human error applied to everything equally <laughs> sure enough so, Joe, my unique stamp of mistakes. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, everyone is flawed, so yeah, it makes sense. 
before we go, Joe, I want to get you to pick a track off of the record that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking that song in particular or an anecdote about the song, I'd love to hear that. Um, cool. You have the whole record. Yep. <laughs> um, let's pick... Uh, oh, man. That's a tough one. Let's pick Repair. Um, uh, Repair is almost a single. It was almost... It was, like, uh, if I had, like, maybe put my foot down as an artist, it could have been rolled out as one of the earlier tracks. And it's just, like, um, uh, kind of just the, the simplest thematic song on the album, and it's just about repairing. <laughs> and uh, Is this the one that yeah, you wrote hope... the day that Trump was elected? Is that what I read? Yeah. Well, a lot of the record was finished that day. I was working okay. a lot around that time. Um and uh, and that one was like, there was definitely me just thinking about the state of the world, as cheesy as that is, <laughs> and and, uh, and just thinking about like repairing and fixing things and right. that kind of thing. All right. Well, we will give that one a listen. Uh, looking forward to seeing you at the Jazz Festival Tuesday, June nineteenth at the Goodwill. Uh, Joe, thanks for taking some time to talk to us today. Yeah. Thanks for chatting with me. <laughs>
That was Joe Past with Repair. They will be playing alongside Kamikaze Girls and Boyhood on Tuesday, June 19th at the Goodwill Social Club. My thanks to uh, Jill Barber, Jordana Telsky, and Joe Past for joining me on this show. Uh, you've been listening to the first edition of Chops Talk, supplanting bad intonation over the next few weeks through the TD Winnipeg International Jazz Festival dates. Next week, we'll be talking to Boyhood. And I'm going to leave you with a boyhood track, Love Bomb. It's the first single. Uh, we're also going to be talking to Allison Ow and Ghost Note. To catch any of these interviews again, you can head over to UMFM's SoundCloud page, where they will be posted after this broadcast. Too, that was the way I could be.